Exodus chapter 1. It's the story of the rescue of God's people from their slavery in Egypt. Exodus, the, the bringing out of God's people. We're reminded in this book of God's good and sovereign power, even in the worst of times. We're confronted with the truth that God is the king above all other powers. There is no God who can stand against him. He is Lord of all, of all people, and of every part of our lives. Commentators through the centuries have called Exodus the gospel of the Old Testament. That this is where we see the, the good news that God is a rescuing God. That he is the God who forgives our sins, who provides an atoning sacrifice for us. That God hears our prayers and forgives our sins. Listen as I read from Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his own family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died, but the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country." So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and work them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly." The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him, but if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw in the Nile, but let every girl live. Let's pray that God would apply the teaching of his word to our hearts. God of grace and mercy, we thank you that your word offers us hope, that in you we find our salvation. Lord, we thank you for the, truth in the, the truths in the book of Exodus, that you are the God who rescues your people. 
that you are the God who forgives our sins. And so, Lord, I pray that having heard your word read and we now listen to it taught, that you would change our hearts, that we would be set free to serve you in faithful obedience, that having received grace, we would respond to your goodness by making your gospel known, that we would respond by, by turning from our sin and trusting more completely in you. For you are the Lord of all, our hope, our salvation. And so, Father in heaven, we come praying in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hollywood loves a sequel. The return on investment feels more secure. The characters are known to the public, and so the creators can spend a little bit more time on world building, on, on, on letting the story stretch. The storylines be can become more complex, perhaps even a little bit darker. Exodus is a sequel. It's the direct continuation of the book of Genesis. Just look at the first line. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob. Now that is the exact same phrase that if you had been reading straight through from the beginning of the Bible, you would have read in, in Genesis 46 when we are told that the sons of Jacob go down to Egypt, we read that exact same phrase. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went. And so it's the continuation of the story. In the Hebrew, it, it begins with the word and. And these are the sons, which, which rightly most of our English translations leave untranslated because it's really more of a, of a structural marker that we're just keeping the story going. This is right where we began. And even the introduction of Israel in verse 1, that these are the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, the fact that we get the same guy in one verse given two names and we're not given any explanation for this, well, it's a reminder that, oh yeah, well, we remember why Jacob's name was changed to Israel because he wrestled with God. You're already in the midst of the story. Exodus is a sequel, not because God is looking for a return on his movie investment, not because he thinks that, well, this will keep you moving. If I, if, I, if I ratchet up the excitement, then you'll come back for more. No, it's a sequel because we remain a people in need. We continue to need God's intervention in our lives. And so we begin with this genealogy, the list of the sons, the 12 sons of Jacob, a man whose name had been changed to Israel. We read in verse 7 that the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly, became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. That language of, of being fruitful and multiplying exceedingly, that's the language of creation. When God made Adam and Eve, that was the command given. Be fruitful and multiply. That's part of our, our purpose being here is that, that we, in growing the families, growing the people of God, spread the hope of the gospel. And so we begin the book of Exodus with a glimmer of good news, with this connection to the work that God had been doing in the book of Genesis, with this glimpse that God is is proving himself gracious and that the Israelites are multiplying greatly. But the storyline turns very quickly there in verse 8. 
Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. A new king who who maybe knew Joseph's name, who knew there had been a foreigner in the court of Pharaoh, but didn't remember what he had done to save Egypt. Didn't remember the ways in which he had provided for the, the people through a worldwide famine. And so the king says, look, the Israelites have become too numerous. And then he lays out his plan in verse 10. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Now, Pharaoh had reason to be suspicious of foreigners invading his land. I mean, Egypt is a, is a kingdom that has been under constant attack. There would be the recent memories of foreigners, the Hyksos people, who had invaded, actually taken over the kingdom and become pharaohs themselves, subjecting the Egyptians to the rule of foreigners. And so this pharaoh is willing to tap into national pride in order to allow for the persecution of these foreigners. As one commentator writing from another country describes this, this is pharaoh's xenophobic nationalism. His fear of strangers, his, the threat against his country and power because of those that are not like him. And so the plan is simple. Let's keep their numbers down. But we don't want to lose them. I mean, I want the foreigner here so that he can do the work I don't want to have to do. Let's keep him here so that he can, can accomplish great things for me and my kingdom. His ethnic hate propaganda, though, wants to, to use them for forced labor. And so they, verse 11 tells us, put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built the cities of Python and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. Now these cities are cities here at the edge of Pharaoh's empire, because remember, that's where the Israelites had settled. There in the land of Goshen, we read in the book of Genesis, in the, in the Nile Delta, at the edge of the empire where the enemies would come. And so he decides to use them to build these, these, these storage cities, likely to store grain for the nation, but also probably places where they stored the weaponry so that when soldiers were called up, they'd be there to fight against the invading armies. Now, Ramses doesn't necessarily have to refer to the pharaoh Ramses II, who likely comes several generations after the time that we're here, because it's an ancient name referring to the god Ra. And so it's a name that could have been used, and that, that Ramses II, the great king who comes later, says, well, let me pull that name from history and use it to describe that, that I now stand in the place of the sun god Ra. Or it's possible that this name is used anachronistically. Because some people look and say, oh, see, we don't even need to trust this. This couldn't have happened. See, when they made up this story generations later, what they didn't realize was that Ramses wasn't even alive yet. So they, they put this name in there. You can't trust this at all. No, the name Ramses could have been a name that got reused, or it was purposefully used anachronistically here to describe the fact that that city that you now know today is Ramses. Well, 
yeah, it had a different name then. But we know it as Ramses. That's the city that the Israelites built. Like if you were taking an, an American history class and learning about the history of New York. That might even be the title on the front of the book, The History of New York. And yet, well, when you read about the Dutch settlement, we, of course, know that it wasn't called New York then, New Amsterdam. But we can call the city New York. You can put the title on the front of the page. See, they are building a kingdom for Pharaoh. Other, other Egyptian pharaohs have already built the giant pyramids. They have shown their power and wealth throughout the ancient world. And this pharaoh decides that, that he's going to use these enslaved Hebrews to build great cities for him, storage cities where he can protect his empire. He's claiming the Hebrews for himself. You see what he's doing? He's putting himself in the place of God. They are God's people, but he says, no, they're mine. I'll use them as slaves for my purposes. I will build my kingdom. The question already confronting us here in the beginning of the book of Exodus is, who is really in control? Who really has power? Is it the Pharaoh, whose name goes at the, the top of the monuments, or is it God who is not seen in the histories of Egypt? And so in building the kingdom for Pharaoh, Pharaoh uses the people of God. We're told that, that even though he's oppressing them, look at verse 12, they continue to multiply. A, a glimpse that God is at work here in verse 12. The more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and spread. See, Pharaoh's attempt is, well, I want to use them while I have control, but I want, don't want them to get more powerful. And yet as he attempts to do that, it doesn't work. And so he, he doubles down. He says, well, well, if I've worked them that hard, let me work them even harder. Because it doesn't matter if you work a slave to the point of death, you got everything out of that slave that you wanted. His labor, her body. You got what you wanted out of these slaves. And so we're told that, verse 13, they worked them ruthlessly. And then look at verse 14, how it just, how it just multiplies the, the tragic language. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the field. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. And so it's working on, in one respect. Pharaoh is building his kingdom. His cities of fortification are being built to protect his kingdom, but it's not working in the plan that if he's trying to keep them from becoming too numerous. Because despite his ruthlessness, we see God's faithfulness. God continues to bless his people even while they are slaves in Egypt. And so Pharaoh adds a, a new horrific evil layer to his plan, not just slavery, but now death. Not merely working them to, to death in building his cities, but directly killing infant boys. Look at verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help a Hebrew woman in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. Pharaoh's plan is 
let's start killing off boys. But let's, to start, keep it on the down low. Like, I'm just going to use the midwives. I mean, childbirth's chaotic. Chaotic even in the, the, the safe environments of our modern hospitals. But imagine in the, 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 the slave uh, villages of ancient Egypt, the chaos. And so, just quietly, when you pull them out, check the undercarriage, and if it's a boy, kill him. Because, well, lots of children die in childbirth. And so we can kill off a generation. Now it's going to take a while. But we can kill off a generation who then won't be able to fight against us. Well, yeah, and then, I mean, at some point you're going to run out of husbands for these wives, and you're, we, we need to keep the breeding program alive, but we can, we can send some poor Egyptians or some other foreigners to, to dilute the legacy of, of the Hebrews. And so let's quietly kill these baby boys. Now, scholars have wrestled with which king of Egypt are we talking about? They want to know, like, is it Ramses? Well, that feels too late for all of the rest of biblical chronology to be squeezed in. Is it, which, which pharaoh are we talking about? Is it Amos, the one who got rid of the Hyksos? We're not given Pharaoh's name to the displeasure of historians throughout the centuries. But do you know whose names we have? The names of the two Hebrew midwives. Shifra and Pua. Because the name of a Pharaoh does not matter. Yes, he'll carve his name in limestone and put it throughout his kingdom. You will see his face everywhere as you walked through his cities. You as a slave would have known his name. You as an Egyptian would have been expected to worship him, but we're not even given his name. But in irony, we're given the name of these two midwives, Shifra and Pua, because they feared God and would not listen to the evil Pharaoh of Egypt. They let these little boys live. Because to kill an infant is a horrific evil. And so when Pharaoh calls them back in and he says, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? I was pretty clear the instructions shouldn't have been misunderstood. You were supposed to be killing baby boys, but I'm hearing now reports that there are baby boys being born. And so they give an answer. Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. Now, they might be commenting the, the word that's translated there in verse 19 as vigorous is, is one that's, that's difficult to translate. And so it might be that they're describing the, the, the activity of Hebrew women in childbirth, but it might just be the attentiveness or the cultural differences that take place in childbirth. The, the, the experience Pharaoh might have in his head is of the wealthy elites in Egypt who have numerous nurses and, and handmaids and midwives to care for the woman in childbirth. And so it would be easy to slide the kid aside. Oh, this one's dead. Sorry. 
whereas the Hebrew women are vigorous. They're actively involved in their own childbirth. We couldn't sneak the kids out without them seeing. See, Pharaoh, we knew that part of your plan was to keep this quiet. It can't be done quietly. And so we see God blessing these midwives, even with families of their own through the grace of God. And yet Pharaoh doesn't, doesn't say, oh, well, that didn't work. He now decides, okay, I can't secretly kill these infant boys, so let's just, well, let's get rid of the secret. Look at verse 22. Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. So no longer is it an order whispered among the housewives, or the midwives. No longer is it an order kept secret. It's now an order given to every Egyptian. If you see an infant boy who is Hebrew, what are you to do? Toss him in the Nile. Feed him to the crocodiles. And not in the, the, the ticking clock happiness of Peter Pan. In the horrific evil of toss him to the gods of the Nile and let him die. Every Egyptian is now pulled into the treachery of Pharaoh. A public program of infanticide for the Hebrew boys. Now, of course... In this telling of the story, we are meant to side with the Hebrew people. We don't feel any worry or sorrow for Pharaoh's lost labor or for Pharaoh's failed plans. We hear of the cruelty of Israel's enslavement, and we know that it is wrong. We listen in on Pharaoh's conversations with the midwives when he tells them to kill infant boys at their birth, and we know that he is evil. And yet we are willing, even in our modern times, even as advanced, civilized people, to tolerate great societal evils. We live in a culture where it can be argued publicly in major institutions of learning that, do you know what? On the basis of the morality that we all accept, infanticide makes perfect sense. I mean, the argument is, if you can kill the child in the womb, then what difference does it make if he's out of the womb? He's still helpless and dependent upon others entirely, and so it's morally acceptable to kill the weak to kill the vulnerable. We, no, we don't talk about it necessarily as blatantly as, as ethicists might in a college classroom by calling it infanticide. When we talk about the weak and vulnerable that we are willing to let die, those nearing the end of life, we, we talk about it as mercy killings. We talk about it as giving them dignity. And yet we're a culture willing to kill for our own convenience. Because we have a distorted sense of right and wrong. And I don't just mean as modern Americans. I mean every one of us has a distorted sense of right and wrong. But we cannot escape these moral questions. Because we live in the world that God made, and we are meant to be in relationships with one another and with God himself. Now, you may reject a Christian's understanding, a, the, the Bible's understanding of, of morality, but you cannot escape morality altogether. And actually, let me, let me 
press this a little bit. If, if you don't have a belief in God, if you don't have a framework or a basis to make moral decisions, as a Christian, I say the Bible provides me with a framework, but if, if you reject the Bible, then, then how do you make moral decisions? What's your guideline for morality? How do you know what right and wrong is? Because when we read it, we instinctively feel, well, that can't be right. Enslaving an entire people for our own profit? I don't think that's right. Killing infants by tossing them to, to drown in a river? I, I don't think that's right. But, but is your morality basically this? Well, I don't like it, so it must be wrong. Well, well, then strawberry ice cream is morally wrong because I don't like it. I mean, you, you, you're basically just left with an opinion, and if you love strawberry ice cream, that's fine. You can, when we get the little Neapolitan, you can have that slice, okay? But basically, if, if you have no real framework, then morality becomes just your personal opinion, just a, a preference. So you need a starting point, but that, that doesn't actually get you through life. Now, thankfully, God has built into us moral instincts so that we know that the question of the life of an infant is more important than vanilla or chocolate or strawberry. We instinctively know that. But it's more than just a gut feeling because, because we can mess with our feelings by our sinful rebellion against God. We need an actual standard for morality. We need God to let us see the fabric of his good creation and let us in on what is good and true based on who he is. And so here, at the very beginning of the book of Exodus, we see the goodness of God. God, who is with his people, even in the midst of their persecution. God is the one who brought them down to Egypt. This isn't a surprise that we're here. Actually, if we'd been paying close attention, we were expecting this. Back in Genesis 15, when Abraham, actually at this point his name's still Abram, hasn't been changed to Abraham, who is the great-grandfather of Joseph, the one who has been forgotten in Egypt. In Genesis 15, God makes his covenant with Abram. God promises to be his God, to be his shield, his protector, his great reward. And, and God warned him, in Genesis 15, verse 13, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own and will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves and afterward they will come out with great possessions. See, if we've been listening, then we, know, we, we, we should have known this was coming. God knows the suffering of his people. But in his goodness, he will let the whole world see his power. I mean, in one sense, if he, if he just leaves things alone, if, if they had continued on in the memory of Joseph, continued on as good Egyptian citizens, then likely they would have just eventually been fully absorbed into Egyptian culture and would have disappeared as a people. And yet the persecution actually keeps them separate, keeps them a distinct people. 
And when God rescues them, his display of grace won't be private. It will be publicly declared in the court of the most powerful man on the planet so that the nations will hear of the goodness and grace of God. Because we've seen that slavery and death in Exodus 1, but we have the presence and promise of God. We saw the glimpse of it there in verse 20 that God was gracious and kind to the midwives, the ones who had proven themselves faithful to his purposes. We saw it back in verse 12 that even when oppressed, the more they were oppressed, then the more they were multiplied. That glimpse that God was at work. But look back at, at the very beginning verses of this chapter where we read the names of the sons of Jacob. We read the first 11 clustered together there. We're given in verse 5 the, the number that there were a total of about 70 of them that came down into Egypt. But look at the end of verse 5. Joseph was already in Egypt. Well, that's right. How did we get here to Egypt? It's because Joseph's brothers, <clears throat> do you remember their names? Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali. Those brothers, they wanted to kill Joseph. Well, Benjamin wasn't in on the plot. They wanted to kill Joseph because it's clear he is daddy's favorite. I mean, you know, he's got the technicolor dream coat. But, but Judah figures out, you know what, killing him, that gets rid of our anger, gives us an outlet for our hatred of him. But we don't walk away with any coins in our pocket. Look at these Midian traders. What if we sell him to them? He's as good as dead to us, but we walk away with some money in our pockets. And so that's what they do. They sell Joseph into slavery to be taken down into Egypt. And the final third of the book of Genesis is the story of Joseph's faithfulness in the midst of great evil. How God preserves him and protects him. But the final section of Genesis is not really about Joseph's faithfulness, but about God's faithfulness to Joseph and his family. See, we get to kind of follow the story in the book of Genesis, seeing what's happening in Egypt and seeing what's happening back in the land of Canaan with Jacob and his other sons. We see Joseph be persecuted, and yet God continues to put him in places of great influence, rising him to the position of being the second most powerful man in the kingdom, second only to Pharaoh himself. And through God's intervention, Joseph per, uh, prepares the people of Egypt for a coming famine so that they store up enough food to not only rescue Egypt, but have food to sell to foreigners who will come in the midst of famine. But we also see what's happening in the land of Canaan. In Genesis 42, Jacob, the father of Joseph, during this severe famine that covers the whole world, and at the beginning of Genesis 42, we read that when Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. 
And so you know the story. The brothers come. They buy grain, but there's the cup hidden. So they have to return. Because who was it that had protected the people of God? Well, it was Joseph, whom God had placed in Egypt. He's the one who is able to sell them the grain to keep them from dying. But it's, but it's worse than just Joseph's family dying if there is no grain in Egypt. If they die, then the promises of God are undone. The promise that Abraham would have descendants as numerous as the sand on the shore or the stars in the sky, it would disappear. God would be defeated. And so when we, when we read that note there in Exodus 1, that Joseph was already in Egypt, we're reminded that God has preserved and protected him. Remember how Joseph summarizes this after he's reconciled with his brothers, but their father dies and they think, well, here it comes. I mean, he was nice to us while daddy was alive, but now that daddy is gone, I think it's coming. I think we're getting what we deserve for trying to kill him and then selling him as good as dead as a slave into Egypt. But you remember in Genesis 50 what he says to them. In Genesis 50, verse 20, which comes on just the page right before what we read in Exodus 1, he says to them, You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So you were evil, and yet God used even your evil for his good purposes. He saved me. He saved you. He saves the world. That's who the promise is for, that Abram would be a blessing to all the nations. So when we read that Joseph was already in Egypt, we know that God was already in Egypt, keeping his promises, because he is the God who rescues. That's what we learn in the book of Exodus. He is the God who rescues us from our sins, who buys us, redeems us from our slavery to sin, sets us free to love and worship him. And we see that fully exploded in the hope of the gospel that's revealed to us when Jesus, God's own son, arrives. Because Jesus Christ is our atoning sacrifice, the one who died in our place. See, we intended it for evil. Those that put Jesus to death intended it for evil, but God worked that evil for our good through his sovereign purposes. See, God is already in Egypt. In your sorrow, God is already there. In your trials, God is already there. In the injustice you face, God is already there. When you cry out for help, God is already there. When you are at the end of yourself, God is already there. God keeps his promises. We find rescue through God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your promises. That you are the God who sees the injustice we face and you respond. You rescued your people from their slavery. You did not abandon them. You are a good and gracious God. And so, Father in heaven, we thank you for your love, your mercy and your kindness shown to us through Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that you would give us the faith to believe. For those of us that feel burdened by the, the struggles of life, that we would know and understand your presence. Lord, by those, for those of us that feel joy and gratitude, that we would freely and gladly worship you. Father, for those that don't yet know you as a heavenly father, as a God of grace and mercy, let them, in turning by faith to Jesus Christ, find their hope and eternal life in you. Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.